Welcome back to The Metabolomist. In this episode, I am joined by Rachel Kelly. Together, we discussed her work in the field of epidemiology, the place of metabolomics in cohort studies, and the work of COMETS to make metabolomic datasets accessible for epidemiological research. This episode also marks the beginning of our journey looking more closely at diseases through the prism of metabolomics, starting today with asthma, a term that includes a heterogeneous set of conditions with multiple presentations and phenotypes. We discuss how metabolomics can help us better understand asthma and hopefully soon provide better care for the patients who suffer from it. The Metabolomist is the podcast where we listen to the stories whispered by metabolomic data. I am Alice Limonciel, and this season we will examine the application of metabolomics in the clinics and the place of data interpretation in this field. Welcome to a new episode of The Metabolomist. Today I'm joined by Rachel Kelly. Hello. Hello. Thank you for uh, having me. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for being here. You're an assistant professor of medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and also affiliated to Harvard Medical School. Do you want to start by telling us about yourself, your expertise and the research that you work on? Yeah, thank you. I am at the Channing Division of Network Medicine, which is a joint appointment with Brigham and Women's and Harvard Medical School. The entire focus of our division is on omics technologies. My real interest is metabolomics. I first mm-hmm. got to metabolomics through my, my PhD, and now I'm applying it mainly to metabolic epidemiology as a means to understand childhood health and, and development as my passion. Okay. Did you use other techniques in your PhD? Like, do you see certain benefits to metabolomics or what made you follow up with this method rather than others? Yeah. So my training background was biology and then I got into epidemiology, which I really found fascinating. And then I went to Imperial College in London to do my PhD in 2010. And, you know, as I'm sure you know, Imperial's home to some of the leaders, some of the real greats in metabolomics. Mm -hmm. So um, I was lucky enough to go to many talks and courses led by some of these people. And it really just inspired me to get more involved in the field. Mm-hmm. And luckily for me, my PhD thesis was based around novel biomarkers of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And as part of that, I was part of the um, Envirogenomarkers Consortium. Mm-hmm. Um, and Envi- the uh, Envirogenomarkers was an EU-funded project that was aiming to find novel biomarkers of environmental exposures and relating those to disease. And one of the many facets that they had within Envirogenomarkers was metabolomics, you know, mm-hmm. in, in addition to other omics and things. So I was able to learn from some of the top people at Imperial generating these data and incorporate that into my thesis. I think that the introduction via envirogenomarkers via really helped me to conceptualize metabolomics, metabolites and metabolome as this kind of intermediate phenotype mm-hmm. uh, between environment and disease. And yeah. coming from epidemiology background, that was just very exciting. I um, guess that, that was still a time where epidemiology had strong hopes for genomics to solve all the issues, right? And then yeah. metabolomics maybe came as a, a kind of savior for yeah. some diseases, at least. You experienced <laughs> that firsthand in your career. Yeah, I think so. I started my PhD and, and, you know, the title was molecular biomarkers, but we also were interested in genetic data. And like you said, as we've seen for so many phenotypes, so many conditions, I think the the promise that we had, you know, that we hoped for for genetics wasn't quite living up to its mm-hmm. potential in some cases, you know. Yes, there have been good good examples, but there are still many yeah. diseases where we know that genetics cannot explain it all. And so yeah. I think it's really the advantage of metabolomics. You get a, a chance to see how the environment and the different factors can also influence it. 
So as an epidemiologist, I guess, a really interesting method from that point of view. One of the topics we wanted to discuss is epidemiology and the use of metabolomics. Can you introduce the field of epidemiology just in a few words that we know clearly (laughs) what we're talking about, that everyone is on the same page, and then we can see how metabolomics fits in that context? There's multiple kind of definitions of epidemiology. And I think, you know, epidemiology really had its moment in the sun with COVID and suddenly everyone was an epidemiologist. Yeah. In its broadest term, it's the study of the distribution and, and the causes or the determinants of health-related phenotypes mm-hmm. in particular populations and the application of this study to con- trying to control these phenotypes, these health problems. Whereas epidemiologists were interested in the etiology of the disease, the pathogenesis mm-hmm. of disease, and mapping the frequency and um, pattern of health or disease states. In specific yeah. Form. And so from my point of view as a molecular biology, I also have this picture of epidemiology as a, a very statistics heavy field. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. And, you know, I think especially yeah. when you move to metabolomic epidemiology, um, which mm-hmm. is, you know, essentially just using metabolomics to address all those epidemiology challenges. And I think when you get to genetic epidemiology, it really is heavily statistics-based, which is what I like about it. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. And in terms of challenges, since you mentioned it, when you started working with metabolomics, were there certain challenges either from the methodology itself or the data type, or maybe the understanding of the results that really were striking for you at the beginning, or maybe still now? Yeah, I feel like everything, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. I, everything is still a challenge. <laughs> you yeah. learn new every day. It comes back to your question about statistics. We have these statistical approaches to deal with things, um, you know, and a lot of those did come initially from the field of genetic epidemiology. When we started applying metabolomics, we were borrowing a lot of their techniques, a lot of their methods. Metabolomics is its own beast. It's very distinct and you can't necessarily treat it in the same way that you would genetics. For mm-hmm. example, thinking about something like the issue of multiple testing, which is a huge one um, for obviously genetic epi, but also metabolomic epidemiology. But again, you have to treat it slightly differently because you're talking about, depending on how your data is generated, the type of metabolomic data you have, you know, tens, hundreds, thousands of, of statistical tests. But what we know is that they're not independent tests. And it's a great benefit that we know this, but we know that metabolites exist in these um, co-regulated and interconnected pathways, which means mm-hmm. that the data is you know, it's highly correlated. And so you can't just do your kind of more standard on for any test. You want to try and take the structure of the data into account when you're dealing with it. So for myself and for everyone in the field, it really, that's a challenge that we're all still working on. And people mm-hmm. have suggested lots of great methods. You know, I think there's a lot out there, but as a community, we still haven't really come to a consensus on the best way to deal with data. It's an interesting parallel you make because so for epidemiology as for metabolomics, it's great to have a strong statistical background, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And you're really well armed to work with it. Um, Before we go to the the paper we wanted to discuss together today, I wanted to ask you about comets because it's a good place here to discuss it, to explain what comets is and how it's organized, what it does, and also maybe how people can contribute their own data to it. So could you explain a bit for people who are not familiar what, what is comets? Yeah, well, and firstly, we'd absolutely love to have anyone who has epidemiology data, you know, we'd absolutely love to have you. So Comets is the Consortium of Metabolomic Studies. It was actually initially founded as a, a national U- USA National Cancer Institute initiative. Um, but they, you know, they were just the funding body. From the outset, it really was designed to look at all different phenotypes. And the idea of it is to promote collaboration among people with metabolomic epidemiology, epidemiology studies. You know, at the time that it was 
first founded, a lot of people kind of working in their silos. And I think one of the things with metabolomics is it's noisy data, but it can be expensive to generate. So, you know, the bigger the sample sizes you can have, the better, you know, the, the more mm-hmm. in your results. So the idea was that to try and bring these people with these disparate studies together, especially to foster international collaborations and to provide a forum for discussion, you know, development to address these issues, things like multiple testing, you know, to kind of get everyone working together on these issues. And then the real thing that they really wanted to promote was this idea of doing meta-analyses, like bringing these studies together to just create bigger sample sizes. Same has been done in other consortiums, you know, genetic epidemiology consortiums or whatever, just mm-hmm. but really just a, a way to bring these studies together. And, and you know, it's still ongoing. Um, from a few years ago, the membership is really exploding. I think at the last count, we had 81 cohorts from around the world taking wow. part, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, representing more than 150,000 people. That's great. Um, yeah, and from all over the world, the one, you know, as is common to many omic studies, we're really, we're missing some representation from Africa, you know, a, a lot of the Southern Hemisphere, really, but mm-hmm. uh, a good distribution of studies from Europe, from America, North America. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and so anyone who has a prospective metabolomic cohort, blood metabolomics yeah. and, and phenotype follow-up could be generated mm-hmm. in either mass spec, could be generated in NMR, we really encourage you to get in touch and join. Once you're a member, there's a huge number of benefits and, and opportunities. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, so it can be mass spec or NMR based. So you collect data. So I guess there are some limitations, but the, the platform is not in itself a limitation. But then you have to combine all this all this data together, right? And then you, there's also the Comet Analytics, I think, where, where users can analyze and filter through the data themselves. So you have to first combine all of that. And let's say if I measure my samples in one platform and then I measure other samples in another one, and I want to compare, let's say, a set of metabolites, first you have to make the connection between the different data sets that we can compare all of that. So that must be a huge amount of work. Huh? Yeah. Yes. I'm sure everyone is very well aware, you, you know, combining metabolomics is a challenge beyond many other omic technologies and you know there are multiple reasons we've got these different technologies that are measuring it um mm-hmm. you've got, got even you know if two measure, being measured on the same platform you're not always going to get the same coverage of the metabolome you know two different studies could get a very different set of metabolites so that makes it difficult even simple things you know and i think this is something so we have two ongoing meta-analyses one looking at mm-hmm. age one looking at bmi and by far the biggest challenge has just been harmonizing the names across because different Companies, different labs, um, Mm -hmm. scientists will call the, you know, uh, exact same metabolites, something not huge. Well, sometimes it can be pretty different. Sometimes it's just the placing of the brackets or a comma versus a a dash or whatever. And it just means Mm -hmm. that once you're doing it on a large scale, you can't just automatically merge them. You have to go through one by one and say, okay, it's the same metabolite as this. So there's that challenge. Oh, sorry. There, there, there are people in the consortium then that are working specifically on doing that work, or huh? yeah, I yes, guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When comets was formed, and they mm-hmm. what they really wanted to do was make it possible for people to do these large scale meta analyses. Mm-hmm. Like, well, what's you know how can we how can we make that happen for people? Obviously, issues of data sharing, data transfer agreements, and everything. It's complicated. They didn't want people to be you know, having to send data across and run it all themselves. So they wanted really kind of a, a centralized means by which these meta-analyses could be conducted. I really think it was, it was genius. And the team led by people like Steve Moore, Evie Matei, Ella Temproza, uh, Chris Zanetti, among many others, 
mm-hmm. developed Comets Analytics to facilitate this. Mm-hmm. The way that Comets Analytics works is that the overall PI defines their research question. For example, we have a study, we want to identify metabolites that are associated with BMI. Mm-hmm. And so you go to the Comets Consortium and you say to the cohort PI, do you want to be part of this meta-analysis? If they say yes, um, as part of Comets Analytics, they generated this kind of um, standardized input sheet. And so this is it's just an Excel file. It has different tabs, one where you put your metabolite information in, one where you put your subject information, and then one where you have these predefined models. So everyone's running the exact same models. The cohort PI populates the Excel file with their data. They mm-hmm. run it through this web interface on Comets Analytics, which is extremely easy to use. I would recommend everyone to check it out. It's free for anyone can use it. You don't need to be a mm-hmm. member. And then you get back your summary statistics and those summary statistics also go to the cohort, to the overall PI of the leading the meta-analysis. Mm-hmm. Then the challenge is you've got these multiple different results files, but you've got potentially different metabolite names in all of them. So they do have a dedicated team, the data harmonization team, in addition to their many other work. They're automating it where they can. But for others, you know, they're really going through metabolite by metabolite and saying, okay, is this the same as this? And they're using all of the metadata provided. So when when the cohort PIs fill in that sheet, they're providing any names that they were provided by the lab. If they know mass to charge ratio, you know, for mass spec data, if they know spectral information, if they have PubMed ID, Chem ID, whatever information they have, Mm -hmm. they include that in the sheet. So again, it's just a case of somebody going through manually and being like, okay, based on all this information, is metabolite X from this cohort the same as metabolite Y from yeah. cohort? So a huge undertaking that is constantly upgoing because mm-hmm. you know, every time um, a new meta-analysis is run, every time a new cohort runs their data, they're then mapping that, those new data to the existing kind of master harmonization list. Yeah. So yeah, um, an ongoing challenge. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but then thanks to the work of the people behind this consortium, then you can really bring together the aspect of the community building of people getting together and sharing their data so that you know others can use it but also they can benefit from the data of others and also combining the data which as a single lab if you come from different platforms is a huge undertaking so i think it's really cool let's say if i'm thinking of uh, doing some epidemiology work uh, with metabolomics but i'd like to see what has been done or how promising it is for my disease and there's some data in comets already i could also go in give some minimum credentials and then already mine what's already there in the database. Is that what you were saying with uh, analytics or you need to be a member? It it doesn't work like that. It's more common analytics is just an online web interface. When I say anyone can use it, what I mean is you can (laughs) download the sample input file. Um, You can populate the input file with your data and then you can run comments analytics and get your summary statistics. But if you had a research question of interest, um, mm-hmm. you can join Comets as kind of a full member if you have a cohort that fits the eligibility criteria. Okay. Um, but mm-hmm. You can also join as an affiliate member if you don't have data of your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and then any member is welcome to submit what we call a project proposal. Um, mm-hmm. That proposal gets assessed by the steering committee just to make sure it doesn't overlap with anything that's already been done. If it's approved, which pretty much always is, then you can go to the cohort PIs and say, do you want to be involved in my research project? And that's when you kind of move to the step of using comets for the metro okay. comets for the meta-analysis aspect. Great. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to, to mention about comets before we move on to the paper? Um, just join. <laughs> yeah, just join. 
And now, but it's true if you have data and you'd like to share it with others and compare it with others, I think it's really a great way to do it. Yeah, and the, and the papers are just starting. You know, we the the initial paper describing the consortium came out a few years ago. The paper describing comments analytics is now out, and now we're really starting to get to the you know the science papers. So those you know more and more we're starting to get these meta analyses papers out, and you know the results are very exciting. Mm-hmm. And it really does show that yeah, you know this consortium wide approach, this metabolite harmonization approach that's going you know, to kind of been developed by comments is is really working well. Yeah, that's great. Then that's the papers that I'm really looking forward to. You suggested one of your papers that I found really interesting. It's entitled Metaboendotypes of Asthma Reveal Differences in Lung Function, Discovery and Validation in Two Top Med Cohorts. And you're one of the two first authors of the article. And as the title says, it's about asthma. Can you tell us a bit what you were um, attempting to do in that paper? What, what were your main goals here? The Channing Division of Network Medicine, where I'm based, we really respiratory focused um you know we do a lot of studies in asthma and copd and so i had done many studies in asthma up until this point you know omics and, and metabolomics of asthma and i think one of the real challenges with asthma that we kept coming up against over and over again is that like many common chronic complex conditions it really isn't a single disease and you can't treat it like that and you can see that both from looking at the the biology of it but also even just you know looking in the clinic there is somewhat of a one size fits all treatment approach to asthma um, and I think because of this underlying heterogeneity, it really hasn't been necessarily working that well for everybody. You know, not everyone is benefiting mm-hmm. from these um, from these treatment approaches. And I think that largely comes down to the fact that, you know, they have a, they all have slightly different types of disease. This was inspired by the idea of endotypes. It was something that was already looked at quite a lot in cancer in particular, but hadn't really been applied to a respiratory disease at this point. But we thought, well, Rather than treating asthma as a single disease, why not try and um, group it into different subtypes? And so so those, people, those endotypes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. People use this as an approach to kind of grouping on phenotype, but we were like, maybe it makes more sense rather to cluster people on their underlying mechanisms rather than on those phenotypic presentations, because mm-hmm. then you're more likely to find uh, biologically, uh, mechanistically heterogeneous group, and then you can target treatment to that biology, to those mechanisms, rather than treat the symptoms of it. And hopefully make more targeted treatment for these different groups. Yeah, so that's kind of the idea. This is what I found really interesting in this paper, because you use metabolomics, but you use it twice. So you use, you use it the first time to create those kind of clusters, those metaboendotypes. And once you have them, then you look into what the differences are in terms of metabolites for these different groups to try and understand what's happening in each group that you couldn't see with the more usual clinical markers. So it was a really interesting approach, I thought. Um, maybe without going into too much detail, can you explain a little bit how you created those metaboendotypes? Types you, you made sort of networks, right, to create the different profiles? Yes. Yeah, so we use a method called similarity network fusion, which was initially developed for transcriptomic data. So this was the first time it had been used for metabolomic data, but it's a fantastic method that it just relies on underlying data structure. So it doesn't need to be specific to any particular data type. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you said, the way it works is essentially it treats every individual as a node within this network. And then the edges that connect these nodes within the network are based on the similarity in metabolic profiles. So, you know, the thicker your edge with another node, the more similar you are, metabolically speaking, to that node. So it constructs this network. And then we use spectral clustering to look for the most highly connected groups within that network. 
you end up with groups of people who are very similar to each other in terms of the metabolic profile and more different to individuals in these other clusters. When we did this, we ended up with five different clusters of individuals that we defined as metabo endotypes. Yeah, I guess so. Then you have those groups, you've sorted your subjects in those different subgroups, and then you went and looked back at their phenotype to see if there were differences that you could find there. Yeah, it was a completely unsupervised approach. We weren't conditioning on any kind of phenotype. So we just wanted to see, we didn't know that we would see differences. Our underlying hypothesis was people who were metabolically different are probably also phenotypically different. So when we looked at these groups, we found some of the important metrics for um, determining severity in people with asthma is lung function, essentially. So we found significant differences in terms of lung function between the individuals in these different groups. So in, in particular, we, end, we found a group who had the best lung function, who we define as kind of the least severe metaboendotype. And then there was a group of individuals who had the most severe asthma based on these, these lung function metrics. And again, you know, the individuals in these two groups, which show difference in severity, were metabolically different. So that was, you know, really exactly. exciting for yeah. us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because you could expect, okay, so you have high function, low function, then you have high levels of those metabolites, low levels of the metabolites, but actually these were different signatures that you found for those different groups. So then you have different stories happening potentially in each in each subgroup. I wanted to ask you a question about some detail about the method, because I noticed that you had four different metabolite platforms, so metabolomic platforms, and you treated them as kind of like four different omic data sets that you incorporated into a final data set at the end or in the final network at the end. Um, what was the benefit of doing that? Did you try first using everything together and then decided to split them because it was more efficient or how did you get to this? Yeah, that's a really good question because this was something, you know, we went back and forward on a lot. The idea is that you can build a network that is informed both by, say, gene expression and proteomics. So if two individuals that have a wide edge between them are more similar based on both those two data types. When we started this analysis, we only had the metabolite data available. So we're like, well, let's just see how it looks with the metabolites. And this metabolomic data was generated by Clary Klisch at the Broad Institute and by Robert Gertzen. Um who's at Beth Israel. And this was generated as part of the TopMed initiative. So TopMed is, is transomic precision medicine for lung diseases. Uh, it's a national heart, heart, lung and blood initiative. So we had these data and what was different about them was that the data generated by the Gertzen lab at, at Beth Israel was a targeted platform. So we had three untargeted platforms and then we had this one targeted AMI platform. Mm -hmm. So you're already dealing then with two quite different types of data. So we didn't want to just kind of put them together in a clump. We were like, well, we should probably be thinking about treating these as two dis distinct data types. So when we first did the network and we combined them all, we found that, you know, the targeted platform was kind of dominating the construction of the network. Okay. At that point, it was hard to say, is it dominating it because it is biologically the most important platform or is it dominating it because it's a targeted relative to an untargeted platform. So we decided that the best way to deal with that was to, you know, go back to the basics of the, the similarity network fusion approach and treat them as though they were distinct omic data, omic data types, because the benefit of that is that you're weighting them all the same. I think there are arguments for and against. If you have four untargeted platforms, I don't think you necessarily would need to do it the way we did it. The other thing that I didn't say at the beginning, but I think is worth pointing out is that as part of this top med initiative, 
we had data generated in two distinct cohorts at the same time. So we were able to... I was going to bring that up too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So we were able gonna... to validate those findings. Yeah. And again, I, exactly. know, I think that always gives you extra confidence in yeah. the method that you choose to use. Yeah. You had two cohorts, one from Costa Rica and one from the US, both children. And, and you make those, those metabol endotypes and it worked in the validation cohort. So you could reproduce the same groupings in the second cohort as well. And one other thing that caught my attention is that the metabolites that were used to form those networks and to define those endotypes, it was not, um, usually we see, you see this kind of signatures is like 10, 15 metabolite stops, but you had something between 150 and 300 metabolites per group. And I wanted to ask you, was that a choice you made to, to, to take large signatures because you wanted that for some reason? Or did the model take you there somehow? Because I, I think it's also really powerful to have so many metabolites in the background. Maybe it helps to get a better resolution between the patients. Is that what happened? Yeah, it's funny. As we had, I was just on a call just before this trying to work out probably a better way for determining mm -hmm. The metabolic differences in the clusters. The way that it worked is we ended up with these five different clusters, metaboendotypes that we knew had different metabolic signatures. But that was based on, you know, an unsupervised clustering approach. So we wanted to say, well, what really, you know, what are those differences? What are the metabolites that are driving the differences that is making these individuals cluster differently? Mm -hmm. What, you know, what are the key metabolites? And I, I think, you know, there's a a few different ways we could look at that. It was the best approach we had at the time. What we did was just a very simple logistic regression analysis. So we just did a one endotype versus the other. So we looked at, you know, our outcome was just endotype one versus all the other endotypes. We ran um, every model looking to see if a metabolite was significantly associated with membership of that uh, metabo endotype. So that meant that a metabolite could be associated with membership of more than one endotype. Sure. I think it was interesting because it did give us that kind of long signature that we could then use in our enrichment analyses. We could mm -hmm. try and understand the full pattern of it, but we're working with other kind of bioinformaticians to see if we can find a better way because the answer is interesting, but I think there's probably mm -hmm. other ways to answer that same question. So that's what we're working on now. When you have more metabolites within one signature, doesn't it give you a kind of richness also to have so many metabolites that you get more precise about what this endotype means? I, I didn't yeah. see it as a as a weakness. I saw it more as a maybe why it worked out so well in that study because it had so many metabolites. But you think it could have been less? Like now that you know the, maybe the data a little bit more or new methods is more, you, you expect you could do something similar with less metabolites in the end? So I think, sorry, I should say that. So the, the formation of the endotypes, I think, should definitely be based on the whole metabolome. You know, mm -hmm. that second step we did where we then did, an, um, you know, once we had metabotype endership as an out, membership as an outcome, we then did these regression analyses to try and identify metabolites associated with membership. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that second step we could probably refine to make more interesting. I think it comes down to that question that we we come to a lot in metabolomics. Is this the purpose of this analysis to understand biology? In which case I would say you want as many significant you know, metabolites as possible, mm -hmm. or is our um, goal to identify biomarkers? In which case you would want a smaller number of unique metabolites. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that which one you do really depends on you know, what your research question is. Um, but would you, so it, the question is what you're addressing here. So to discriminate between different subjects with different subtypes of a disease and to have better targeted therapies and to maybe find new therapeutic targets. 
I find the approach you had really relevant here. So much more than to have a collection of one or two biomarkers that would tell you, okay, you have asthma, but on one or two biomarkers, you will not be able to distinguish between five categories. It's unlikely, let's say, uh, in the way that you did here. So I think for this, you explain it really well in the paper as well in the discussion. You write it has a twofold translational potential. And then for the reasons that we explained, so you can treat the patients in a much more efficient way, hopefully. So if, especially if we go to the second step where you try to understand these endotypes better, then you can hopefully find better therapies or what is the best way to approach it first? Should we first attack the, the surfactant effect or should we look at maybe more immune effects or things like this? And then, as we said, the new therapeutic approach, so the new targets that could be that could be researched. Um and yeah, I think it works really well in this paper. And so the, the second figure that you have in the paper is this is uh, chemical enrichment analysis. That's the approach that you took to take a deeper look at what's happening in the at the metabolite level. And there we see that a lot of those metabolites are lipids. So you have a lot of groups, classes of lipids that have a, an important role here. And here again, if lipids are really so critical in the disease, then you're probably going to have to measure quite a few of them to have an idea of what's happening in the class. It's very different from the small molecules. So I think it's another reason why having a lot of metabolites in this case was probably a good approach. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, so what was your experience with the, the chemical enrichment analysis? Uh, why did you use this rather than maybe more classical pathway analysis where it would tell you like this metabolic pathway is activated and so on? Yeah, great question. And funnily enough, it was the, um, the suggestion of a reviewer um, who said, well, you mm-hmm. know, I think, you know, we were initially using more classic pathway analysis. And I think you could have a whole podcast on the pros and cons of pathway analyses. But I think depending on you the data, set, should. <laughs> I think that'd be a great one. I, I would definitely listen. Yeah. Uh, as we know, there are there are cons to pathway analysis, and mm-hmm. you know that really relates to things like the coverage of the metabolome. What are you actually measuring? You know, what is your background reference data set? Um, mm-hmm. Because that, all of that has a huge impact on the on the pathways that you find, which can lead to results yeah. that be biased towards the better, the bigger, the more well characterized. Exactly, um, and with the set that you see in the in this second figure, where you see there are lots of triglycerides and lots of different complex lipids, I guess you lost a lot of those metabolites in the pathway analysis because it usually yeah. focuses on small molecules so that that must have been what rang the bell for the the reviewer I guess yeah yeah exactly yeah and so yeah. we were very grateful so I had to admit I didn't it wasn't you know I was aware of it but I had never used it and now now we're you know we're huge fans in our lab we use chemistry a lot <laughs> you know I do think it's a really nice method because you as you say it isn't reliant on these reference databases that are based mm-hmm. on curated biological pathways it's really based on on the yeah. chemical similarity and the structure of the of the metabolites, which is hugely beneficial for lipids, which I think a lot of us are are interested in and which a lot mm-hmm. of the data sets that are being generated contain. So I think it's a really nice method for that. And, yeah. you know, and you it's know, a great I, way I to know. visualize it as well. You see immediately yeah. which are the more represented classes. On the other hand, if you're not an expert of biochemistry, you're going to have a lot of uh, painful literature search when you go look yeah. into the small molecules. So I, mean, <laughs> I think both methods have their benefits. But if your signatures are, are full, like heavily reliant on lipids, there's it really makes sense to look at it that way. And yeah. then you went on to discuss. So I guess this was also one question I had. So you went on to discuss what's happening in each of the metaboendotypes, of course, and what what that could mean in terms of mechanisms, in terms of what's happening for the patients at the molecular level. 
Um, and so if, if you take the study from the beginning, so I don't, I don't know where it started for you, if it was like looking for cohorts or if you also organized the collection of the samples, I'm not sure at what stage you got in, but like from, from the preparation of the study to the interpretation and the finalization of the paper, what would you say is the part that took the most time? <laughs> this is a question um, I often ask. So <laughs> yeah, it's a great, and you know, I, I, I'm always saying to, you know, the postdocs in our lab, you know, because I think, especially when they first start, you know, they're always eager and itching to get papers out. And I'm like, you know, science is slow, <laughs> unfortunately. I should first of all say that these were two pre-existing cohorts, um, mm -hmm. the the CAMP cohort and the Genetics of Asthma in Costa Rica cohort. You know, they, they've been long part of um, the data sets we have available at the Channing. Um, and, you know, follow-up actually isn't even ongoing anymore in the, on these cohorts, but we do have multiple samples We'd already generated metallomic data in, in both of them, um, but as part of the TopMed initiative that I mentioned, we were able to generate more. So, you know, if you include data generation, it was probably three years um, to start to finish. But I think from my point of view, you know, because I'm not in the lab, I'm just the numbers person once we get the data. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that takes the longest for all these kind of machine learning studies and, and even more, you know, classical statistics it's really like calibrating those models. Um, you know, so for us, there was a huge amount of trial and error. You know, we talked about the looking at the data set as one versus looking at the four different platforms. And with machine learning and with statistical models, you know, there really is no right answer. You're just trying to find the best fit for your data. So testing out different parameters, recalibrating the models, that was working out what makes the most sense, what fits the data best, what can we then validate in another cohort Mm -hmm. uh, that was probably the most time-consuming, uh, but most important part of analysis. Yeah, that's where the the manual work really comes into play. Yeah, yeah. And uh, considering the the application that you make of of metabolomics here, do you see a potential for it to be applied one day in the clinics that people will use it? And if so, what does it take to get from the stage where we are now, so where we have this nice proof of principle, probably? Some independent researchers should show that they can also apply it to other cohorts or something like this. But let's assume this happened. What does it take to make it that one day we make a simple blood test in asthma patients and we can categorize them in one of those categories and, and make much better precision medicine for them? I think there's a, a huge number of steps. Um, you know, I think the first thing, as you say, would just be making sure that we can validate them across time. This was based on a single blood sample. What we would want to do is to make sure that if we did the exact same thing in a blood sample from these individuals five years later, 10 years later, are they still clustering in the same groups? And if they're not, maybe that's because the phenotypes have changed. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, determining the stability of these, in addition to validating in other populations, is key to make sure that these really are biologically, clinically meaningful metaboendotypes. And then I think after that, you know, the real work will be you know, as we talked about with the regression models, just digging down and being like, okay, well, what is, what are the metabolic differences between these groups and what part of that difference can we target? What is the, the real metabolic dysregulation in each of them? And what can we do to write that dysregulation? And then the next stage is clinical trials, moving into the clinic, I mean, developing mm -hmm. new medications. I think, you know, with all the work we do, I feel like we talk about clinical translatability because I, I do yeah. think potential is there but I don't think for most metabolic epidemiology studies you know we're quite there but you have to do the initial discovery work you have to do sure. the the more basic science to inform those next steps mm -hmm. 
And I think an approach like the one you took here is really interesting too, because asthma is far from being the only complex disease that has this heterogeneity. So a similar approach could be used for many different diseases. And it is being used, you said, in cancer, I think also for many other diseases. Um, is there anything else you wanted to discuss about this paper specifically that we haven't discussed yet? Yeah, we're, we're pretty excited about this approach overall, mm-hmm. this idea that for multiple different you know, heterogeneous diseases, that you can try and identify mechanistically informative subgroups based on the metabolome. I really, you know, I really do believe in that principle. And I think we've shown it well in asthma and now we're applying it to, to multiple other conditions that we have access to. One of the ones that we have collaborators at Mass Ioneer, um, and they're doing, you know, we're working with them to do some really exciting work in looking at endotypes of age-related macular degeneration, mm-hmm. a hugely devastating condition. We're seeing really great results there as well. I do think this is an approach that is exciting and that it's going to continue to show exciting results moving forward. I hope so too. And you wanted to discuss another approach that you had in a in a second study on autism. Do you want to maybe quickly just say what was different there and what happened in that paper? We will put the link to the paper in the show notes so people can look at it too. Yes, yeah, so this was a study where we we got a grant from the Simons Foundation for Autism Research, um, and we plan to use the exact same approach. So they mm-hmm. have a, a, a population of children, the Simons Simplex Collection. Um, so it's children with a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. Um, and again, you know, autism is a hugely heterogeneous condition that, you know, has very, very varying uh, phenotypic manifestations. And so we thought, why not take the same approach? Because there's a real strong rationale for why we might see metabolic different groups of people, groups of children with this condition and why we might be able to, you know, use the exact same approach to look at the metabolic differences between them. Um, So we received the grant, we generated data on 2,600 children with autism spectrum disorder. Um, But the more we, what was interesting about this was that we went in planning this approach, but the more we learned about the condition, we spoke with the, the people who generated the cohorts, we spoke with the clinicians, with the, you know, behavioral psychologists, Um, we ended up completely flipping our approach. And instead, we clustered the children based on their phenotypic presentation. And then we looked for metabolic differences between the phenotypically different uh, clusters. Mm -hmm. And I think it was interesting about that is it it just goes to show that depending on the data that you have, depending on the population you're working in, the right approach differs for different different data sets. Because again, Mm -hmm. we ended up seeing we, we got three clusters of of children with ranging um, phenotypic presentations of, of, it was a very well, phen- you know, it said autism cohorts, so it was very well phenotyped. We were able to use a lot of data to inform the, the phenotypic clusters. And then again, we did see, you know, significant differences in metabolites um, between these different clusters that mm-hmm. kind of that tracked to those phenotypic differences, almost using the exact opposite approach, but again, yeah. seeing um, you know, that idea of clustering and, and looking at um, the metabolome, I think, is just a really powerful approach to consider heterogeneous diseases, because at the end of the day, I think for a huge number of chronic or complex conditions, I think the real take home message is you can't necessarily treat them as a single condition. You have to consider mm-hmm. the the idea that, that they are phenotypically different and therefore most likely biologically different, or there are mm-hmm. biological and I guess with this approach also you put yourself in a position where you have more chances to understand what is causing these phenotypic changes so because yeah. you you start from there so you you can more easily go back to that with the metabolomic results yeah 
Okay, so we'll, we'll link to both papers on the show notes on the on the episodes webpage, so people can go and check them out. In this in this second paper as well, one thing I noticed is that um, the blood that was collected from the from the children was uh, not fasted, which can be rather unusual for this type of study. And so, for people who listen to the podcasts um, for a while, they might remember from last year that Hannah Laura Daniel mentioned that. As far as we know, there was no study that really determined that fasted blood samples were the best way to do anything. So, of course, they help to have a certain type of homogeneity for certain factors, or at least that's the hope. Um, but here you have this set of non-fasted blood samples. And I wanted to ask you, what's your experience with this? Do you see a benefit to having fasted blood samples or is it the same? Is it just a matter of how you handle it from the statistics point of view? What's your experience with this? Yeah, the first thing to say is that we tend to deal with childhood cohorts or with pregnancy cohorts. So often our samples are not fasted just because they're populations that you can't necessarily ask to fast. So mm -hmm. we often had samples that were either mixed in terms of fasting status or, or were not fasted. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the things with metab metabolomic epidemiology is I think a lot of people are using historical cohorts, they're using biobanks, they're using data that wasn't necessarily collected for metabolomics. So often they're not going to be able to dictate the conditions in which the blood were collected. So a lot of people are going to have that mix or not necessarily know fasting status. And so I think it's a really important and interesting question to try and get a grasp on how important is fasting status because it can affect the studies of many many people yeah you know, what I will say from my own experiences so as I mentioned we have the um the BMI meta-analysis that we're doing in comets um and so as part of that BMI meta-analysis we have 45 different cohorts who are taking part representing over, over 100,000 people many historical many the blood was not initially collected with metabolomics in mind so we have a mix of cohorts that were fasted and cohorts that were not fasted. Mm -hmm. What we have found, and this is specific to the question of BMI, but what we have found is that for the most part, it doesn't actually influence our results. Mm -hmm. So when we compare the, the summary statistics, the results of those cohorts that were fasted, for the vast majority of the metabolites, the, the correlation coefficients, the p-values are very, very similar. You know, you're not getting a completely, between the fasted and the non-fasted, you're not getting mm -hmm. a completely different set of metabolites. So we were somewhat surprised. Mm -hmm. We thought we would see more of an influence of fasting status, but actually we were very reassured to find out that um, that we weren't, you know. And, and that's not to say that some metabolites were not affected by fasting status. There was Exactly, because I guess there are some usual suspects that you would see differing yeah. like yeah. glucose probably or some triglycerides or I don't know what would you saw changing do you remember what were the differences in that case there was mainly it was mainly lipids to be honest mm -hmm. um we you know would either be significant only in the fasted or only in, in the non-fasted but you know I think it, that's kind of the beauty of metabolomics and I think it's also something that we need to think about moving forward is that similar to that issue of you know how do we treat multiple testing I think we can't necessarily assume that we can treat every metabolite the same, you know, because we know there are going to be some that are affected by things like fasting status, some that are affected by, you know, things like age. Um, you know, the issue of missingness is very, you know, different depending on what metabolites you're thinking about. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, what we have to do as a community moving forward is work out, okay, what are those metabolites that are influenced by this factor or that factor and consider treating them differently to the others. But, you know, I guess the overall take home message from the, from that BMI study 
is for the vast majority of metabolites, fasting or non-fasting in this analysis didn't really make any difference to our results. Yeah, that's really a great example. Thanks. Okay, then I think we're ready to move on to uh, learning about your favorite metabolites and why it is your favorite metabolite. I'm curious. So this came from genetics initially. So we have another asthma cohort. It's actually a, a pregnancy cohort, um, VDAR, and it stands for the Vitamin D Antenatal Asthma Reduction Trial. So the idea was that pregnant women were randomized to either sub- supplementation with vitamin D throughout their pregnancy or to a placebo with the hypothesis that the mothers who were uh, randomized to vitamin D were less likely to have offspring who had asthma. Um, So that was how the the study was initially set up. So we were looking at, um, for this particular analysis, we were interested in the children at age three, once, you know, they had been determined if they had asthma or not. Um, And one, you know, we were looking at from a genetic angle for this particular analysis. And one of the the, the most replicated loci for childhood asthma is the 17Q21, in particular, the RMGL3 locus, the RMGL3 gene. And RMGL3 is a sphingolipid biosynthesis regulator. So essentially, we know that when this when RMGL3 is overexpressed, it kind of blocks the production of de novo um, sphingolipid synthesis. So we were interested in that gene, but then we got the metabolic data available. So we started to look at it together and... Um, what we found was really interesting um, was sphingosine one phosphate, because you know it's really play, it plays such a key role in sphingolipid biosynthesis. So that is my favorite metabolite because we came at it from a genetic angle, but it ended up being a real key metabolite um, in our analysis of these children with asthma, and in particular the, the vitamin D angle. Because what we found was that in the mothers who were supplemented with vitamin D their children overall did have a reduced risk of asthma, but it wasn't the case for everyone. There seemed to be the subset of children whose mothers received the vitamin D, but they still didn't have the reduced risk of asthma. And that all seemed to relate to the fact that those children had a specific genotype within the RMDL3 locus because it was overexpressed. They weren't producing enough sphingosine 1-phosphate, enough de novo sphingolipids anyway. So it didn't matter how much vitamin D you put into the system, their levels of any protective sphingolipids were not increasing and therefore their risk of asthma was not affected by the vitamin D. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, when you think of sphingosine 1-phosphate overall, it's just like a really interesting metabolite. So that was kind of our first introduction to it. But now as we move more to looking at autism, mental health conditions, you know, it, it's a really important um, metabolite in the body and it's involved in multiple different conditions and it plays multiple you know different roles in immunity and so I think there's a lot of interest overall in targeting this metabolite for multiple conditions so that is why I chose it to be my favorite metabolite. Great thank you very much and it's also nice when when you get a metabolite of interest that comes from different kinds of omics I think that also gives you this idea that all oh, this really is like a hub of what is happening in my study and yeah. this is something I don't know if you use multiple omics often in your work or if you really focus more on metabolomics but it can also be a way to kind of give yourself a bit more confidence that this is really a, a change that is relevant in your study yeah as a division we're really interested in, in multi-omic analyses and it's something that we're trying to do more and more. There are just many analytical challenges involved. So I think, you know, what we're really focused on right now is trying to solve some of those analytical challenges um, 
as we move to these more multi-omic studies. And it's funny because there are still so many challenges to solve just for metabolomics alone, that you're magnifying when you start adding in multiple omics. I do think it's where the, the field is going. I do think it's the future. And, and I think it's huge, exciting potential. It's a learning curve. We're mm. getting there slowly. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking part in the podcast and for your beautiful contribution. Well, thank you. It was really wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us in this discussion. I hope that this episode gave you new insights and ideas on how to plan, conduct and communicate your own metabolomic projects and that you're excited for the future clinical applications of metabolomics. If you'd like to continue this journey with us, make sure to register for the Metabolomist email list on the podcast webpage, themetabolomist.com. If you want to learn more about how data interpretation is done, check out my book on the story principle at biocrates.com slash the story principle. For regular news on metabolomics and data interpretation, you can follow me, Alice Limonciel, on LinkedIn, where I post on metabolites, analysis strategies, data processing tools, and more. And make sure to check out our other podcast episodes on the Metabolomist website.